Good morning, my name is Frances, and I am on the pastoral staff for kids, youth, and camp ministries, and it is my, this one, move it down, okay, and it is my joy and pleasure to get to share with you about the Eighth Commandment this morning. Um, I would be remiss if I did not mention that there is a stained glass window behind me that shows Moses, and he happens to be pointing to the Eighth Commandment, and that is the one we are talking about today. So that's a little bit of Knox trivia for you before we get started. So, you shall not steal. This commandment seems fairly straightforward, and I think many of them as we've journeyed through this have felt fairly straightforward. I think as we've read through the Ten Commandments and we get to the selection especially of you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, and we all feel fairly confident that these are the ones we can uphold. And they may seem fairly black and white. They may even seem extreme. Well, I am not going to get to the point where I do, fill in the blank. But as we've gone through this series together, I'm sure that many of us have found that it is actually less black and white than it seems. There is nuance, there is great depth. There is the law, but there is also the spirit of the law, what it means to live as people of God made in the image of God. We are not setting up extra precautionary rules here or hedges around, around what God has decreed. By the time Jesus came to earth and began his ministry, there were so many rules added to the Ten Commandments and the covenantal law as protection to keep from disobeying that Jesus addressed so many of those. Rules such as do not walk this many steps on the Sabbath so as to keep the Sabbath holy, or don't take the Lord's name in vain, so don't even speak his name. The intent behind all of these extra rules may have been good, but God calls us to so much more than just following rules. In our membership class, Nick reminded me that we often say, if Christianity was just rules to follow, you could do that on your own. You wouldn't need the church. God is concerned with the condition of our hearts. We are called to a full and joy-filled life in Christ, one that changes us from the inside out. The kingdom of God is both here and now and also not yet. And so we live being renewed by God, by the Holy Spirit, being made more and more like Christ. So how do we live in a way that best reflects the way Jesus lived and calls us to live? As we read the gospel accounts of Jesus, we see that there is always a little bit more or a lot more in Jesus's teachings. By teaching in parables, Jesus grants understanding to those who are willing to listen and who are seeking after him. Truth is revealed to those who are willing to listen and thoughtfully consider what Jesus has to say. This is also true for the Ten Commandments. Are we willing to consider what is at the heart of these commands? In the chapters following the Ten Commandments in the passage in Exodus, the people of Israel are given more thorough instruction. This is often called the Mosaic Covenant or the Law of Moses. And contained within these, this covenant given to Israel is further instruction on what is not to be stolen, how those who are stolen from should be punished, and how, um, sorry, how those who are stolen from should be repaid, and how those who have thieves should be punished. In Peter J. Lightheart's book, he summarizes it like this. In the Torah, the first specific law about theft is a prohibition of kidnapping or man-stealing. We can steal another person by enslaving him, unjustly imprisoning him, coercing his productivity, manipulating an employee to accept lower than reasonable pay. Further, the law demands that we take care of our neighbor's property. If a friend gives you something to keep while he's on vacation, you must protect it as if it's your own. 
If you damage something you borrowed, you must make restitution. If you find your neighbor's animal wandering, you must return it or take care of it until the owner reclaims it. And if your enemy's animal is caught under a burden, you must release and return it. But even these instructions can seem like situations that don't apply to us, right? How many among us have found a neighbor's cattle wandering in the streets of Toronto and needed to take care of it before we could return it? But what might be our modern day equivalent? And when do we do the bare minimum in order to get out on a technicality? In our reading from Amos this morning, thank you Paul for reading for us this morning, we heard these words, you levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and, to, and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. The message says it this way, you run roughshod over the poor. You take the bread right out of their mouths. I know precisely the extent of your violations, the enormity of your sins, appalling. You bully right living people, taking bribes right and left and kicking the poor when they are down. During the beginning of our COVID-19 pandemic and during different parts of the waves as well, we have seen hundreds, if not thousands of people across our city and in our country empty the shelves of our grocery stores. Those who couldn't, could afford to do so hoarded and stockpiled rice, grain, flour, canned goods, bottled water, even toilet paper. And we may have added to our stockpiles our supplies as well in order to prevent having to go out and potentially spreading the virus. But I do wonder if this was really the primary driving force behind all of this stockpiling. I wonder how many of us, while we made sure that we had enough, thought of those who were unable to do the same whether out of a lack of space in their pantry, homes, or a lack of homes, a lack of finances to be able to do so because they live from paycheck to paycheck and cannot afford to buy extra, or those of us in our community who can only purchase what they can literally carry home, whether in their arms or their small grocery hamper, and are confined by that limitation. And so we saw those who were privileged and able to do so purchase more than they needed, stripping our grocery stores of the stock they had and leaving little to nothing for those who were unable to afford to do the same and making it harder for those just trying to buy their regular groceries. Even those among us who didn't take a lot extra contributed to the overall impact. Perhaps you didn't clear the whole shelf, but the net impact of us all taking more left little to nothing for others who could not do the same. What we saw was people, perhaps even ourselves, running roughshod over the poor and taking the bread right out of their mouths. God's command to not steal is about more than grand larceny, embezzlement, car theft, armed robbery, or even taking a pen from your place of work. This commandment protects personal property and it teaches us to respect the property of others, but more than that, at its heart, it contrasts two ways of living, giving, getting or taking versus giving. In her book, 10 Words to Live By, Jen Wilkins says this, all stealing is gain at someone else's unwilling expense, whether that expense is small or large. Stealing, like murder and adultery, is an expression of contempt, answering wrongly the question, am I my brother's keeper? Taking what is not ours, or that which we do not need, shows a disregard for others. It doesn't matter whether what we have taken back, or what we have taken or held back is a little or a lot. We know that God cares just as, much, just as much about the small things because all of it points to the condition of our hearts. The intent of the commandment, do not steal, 
is deeper. So are we a people who are focused on the grind, on accumulating wealth for the sake of status or privilege? Or are we a people that share, who give to those in need, who hold what we have been given with open hands? In the book of Ruth, which you may be familiar with, we have a story of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. There is a famine in the land of Moab, and Naomi is widowed. She's recently lost her sons as well, and so her daughter-in-law, Ruth, is also widowed. And the two women make the journey back to Bethlehem, where Naomi is from. They arrive in the season for harvesting grain, but as widowed women with no male family members, in this time and place in history, they are vulnerable and poor. In order to provide, Ruth goes out into the fields, fields that belong to a man named Boaz, and she begins to pick the grain that fell to the ground as the workers were harvesting. The law of Moses in Deuteronomy instructed landowners to leave what harvesters missed so that the poor, the foreigner, the widow, and the fatherless could gather from that for their needs. I'm going to read these verses from Deuteronomy for you. But first, I have a little bit of interesting information for you that stuck with me from my ancient Hebrew class. I got to draw from this class so little, so I'm going to use it today. The Old Testament books, before they were written down and bound in the version that we have, were passed by oral tradition. And oral tradition gives a great deal of emphasis to the rhythm and repetition of language. In fact, rhythm and repetition are two of the most interrelated and important characteristics of storytelling. So as I read these verses, I invite you to notice the importance of what is being repeated here. I'm just going to grab water before. So Deuteronomy says, When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. God doesn't just make provision for the poor, but he commands those who have abundance to share it. It may be the work of your hands and the harvest from your fields, but not everything is for you. We do not accumulate wealth at the expense of the poor. There must be a generous attitude toward others. The biblical posture toward ownership is stewardship rather than the right to do whatever we please with whatever we have. And as the people of God, we recognize that it is God who has, is the ultimate owner and provider. And our role is responsibility and compassion, not possession and power. So let's return to our story from Ruth. In the biblical narrative that begins in one garden in Genesis and ends in another in Revelation, Ruth and Boaz are part of this story that points to Christ. And the integrity of character we see in, Christ, in Boaz is a foreshadowing of Christ. Boaz not only meets the requirements of the law, he embraces the spirit and biblical ethic behind it. Boaz tells his workers to allow Ruth to gather from among the sheaves, not just what has fallen from the harvested fields. He goes so far as to tell them to pull out stalks from their bundles and leave it for her to pick up, not to embarrass or rebuke her. In doing this, Boaz ensures that the amount she is able to glean will be more than the usual harvest gleanings. He protects her by encouraging her to stay in his field with the young women of his household, and he tells the men not to touch her. And he provides her with water whenever she is thirsty and food when they break for a meal. When Ruth goes home to Naomi, she leaves with an abundance of grain, 
so much more than she had ever expected. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 141 asks, what are the duties required of the Eighth Commandment? It lists 10 very comprehensive obligations, but I'll draw your attention to just one this morning. Giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others. We are called as the people of God to labor for the provision and well-being of others. The New Testament writers had a lot to say about wealth and generosity and what it means to labor for the provision and well-being of others. James tells us to care for the orphans and widows and warns us against showing favoritism to those who are dressed finely over those who might look poor. Peter writes, each of you should use whatever gifts you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. To the church in Philippi, Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And in Ephesians, he says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer and must, and must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. How often do we see ourselves as providers of abundance? Church, we are rich. We are rich because nearly half the world lives on $5.50 a day, and most of us here, I think, do not. And I do not know all of your personal stories or what your bank accounts look like or what you do or do not do when you leave this place. And I know that we live in a city with a high cost of living, and there are many, many good ways to be good stewards of what God has given us. And I don't need to know the details of those things because you know them and God knows them. It is not the having of wealth or abundance that is the problem, but we do need to check our hearts and our posture toward it. Do we make an idol of money and then hoard things in such a way that it steals from those who are in need? And there is a tricky part in all of this because there are people who are living on very little and who perhaps even have stolen to provide for themselves and their families. But we are not told, do not steal. However, in these situations, A, B, C, D, it is okay. The simplicity of this commandment in Exodus is unparalleled in all other Near Eastern ancient laws on theft. And it is addressed to the whole people of God, regardless of, without distinction of status. Whether rich or poor or anywhere in between, the people of God should be characterized in a way that is radically different from what is seen and expected in the world. But if we are living in such a way that forces those who have less to steal in order to provide for their even most basic needs, what is our responsibility? What God has given to us is entrusted to us for the good of all who God has called us to serve. And that's not just our family or our friends. If we tithe to the church but otherwise live up to our means, spending every penny we have earned on ourselves, we are robbing the poor. In the message version of Luke, Jesus says these words, if you love only the lovable, do you expect a pat on the back? Run-of-the-mill sinners do that. If you help only those who help you, do you expect a medal? Garden variety sinners do that. I tell you, love your enemies. Help and give without expecting a return. You'll never, I promise, regret it. Live out this God-created identity the way our Father lives toward us, generously and graciously, even when we are at our worst. Our Father is kind. You be kind. Our generosity is not one that is compelled out of a works-based faith, but it comes out of gratitude for the abundance that we have received in Christ. 
We get to give generously to any who are in need. I want to share a story with you about what this generosity has looked like in my own life and has greatly impacted both myself and my husband. First, it requires a little bit of context. I grew up with a single mom. I am the oldest of three kids, and my dad left when I was six. While we always had enough to eat and a roof over our head and got to be involved in extracurriculars, my mom worked hard at a number of jobs, sometimes a number of part-time jobs, just to make that happen. My husband also grew up as one of three kids among the working middle class, and I'm not sure that any of, both either of us um, really ever understood how hard our parents worked to provide for us, pinch pennies, or make it possible for us to have certain experiences until we were adults and even parents ourselves. And also, we still had enough. We, in many ways, were rich. As our parents didn't have a lot of extra money, uh, we both got our first jobs fairly early, not because we needed to contribute to the household, which is the case for many, but in order to pay for the extras that we wanted, whether that was food when we went out with friends, certain pieces of clothing our parents said no to or were outside of their clothing budget. That was me, probably not Pete. Um, <laughs> gas if we drove places, or a car if we chose to buy one. In 2009, Pete and I were engaged, and we, we drove a very, very old two-door Chevy Cavalier that probably shouldn't have been on the road and had barely passed its safety inspection. I should also mention that this is a huge upgrade from the Saturn SL1 that Pete drove, which required extra liters of oil every time he gassed up between services. Uh, it was a money pit. Both of us were attending Tyndale in North York as full-time students, working part-time, living at home. Pete in Brampton and I was in Mississauga, and we volunteered in a youth ministry in, at a church in Streetsville. The car was necessary for us to be able to meet all of our commitments. We were fortunate that we could often travel to things together, but I also took two buses, three subway lines, another bus, and walked on mornings where I worked and evenings where I had class. The car was much more efficient. The TTC was part of that line, so you can imagine how inefficient it was to get to class sometimes. And I also took the Mississauga Transit, which was worse. But one day, a prominent leader in an international organization who attended our church came to the youth pastor we volunteered with and told him he was buying a new car and he wanted to gift the car that he was currently driving to us. It was still in good condition, it had low mileage, it was well taken care of. When we were told about this, at first we were a little hesitant. We, wouldn't sure, we weren't sure if we should accept. We had a car. It wasn't great, but it worked. It got us from A to B. We were told more firmly that no, he was giving us this car, not just anyone. He wanted us to have this car. And so we became recipients of this very generous gift. What stands out most to both of us about this gift is twofold. The first is that it was a very reliable, but not at all fancy car. We were aware that this leader who was prominent in his field was still very humble in the way in which he lived his life and spent his money visibly. And second, he could have asked us, would you like to buy this car at a really great price? And we probably would not have batted an eye. But he didn't need the money and he wanted to pass on what he had and what was still a reliable and well-taken-care-of vehicle to someone who could really use it. That vehicle was a huge blessing to us, and not just because we were undergrad students with OSAP loans, marriage on the horizon, trying to get to class and volunteer, but also because it taught us so much about God's provision, about receiving this kind of gift or blessing from someone, and it was a tangible example of the kind of generosity we are all called to. I do not think we have to all give away our cars to take part in this kind of kingdom generosity, but we should ask ourselves, and God, 
is there something or somewhere where I am holding on to something that withholds or steals from others? In Mark 10, Jesus says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And two chapters later, he extols the generosity of the poor widow who gave two very small coins to the temple treasury in contrast to that which the large, the large amounts that the rich gave. The amount we hold back or the amount we give does not particularly matter. What matters is our heart, our posture. Are we holding tightly onto what we have or are we holding it with open hands ready to give generously to those in need? When we feed the hungry, bring water to the thirsty, when we invite a stranger in or clothe those who lack clothing, when we visit the sick or help those in prison, whatever we do for those who are in need, who are under-resourced, who need a friend, when we advocate for the poor or the underrepresented, underrepresented, support the refugee, assist the pregnant teen, vote for policies that help the poor rather than the rich, all of it we do for Jesus. All of these things are acts that bring life and that allow for flourishing, that put actions to the words in the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to conclude with these words from Jen Wilkin. It is never too late to turn from our taking. In his final hours of agony, it was the thief whom Jesus forgave. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Friend, while it is still called today, heed the eighth word. Let your hands not grasp for the goods of others. Let your pockets turn loose of their earthly treasures, that all might have daily bread. Your daily bread is to do the will of him who sent you. He bids you to spread abundance. Let us pray. God, maker and provider of all, we trust you to be our provider. Help us not to grasp for the things of this world, but to hold what you have given us with open hands. Forgive us for the ways we have held on to things, money, time, food, resources, in such a way that has robbed those who have need. Break our hearts, Lord, for the things that break your heart. Help us to have eyes to see where there is need and ears to hear the prompting of your Holy Spirit. Make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. I have two questions for you to reflect on this morning as we spend a little bit of time in reflection. The first is to ask God, is there somewhere where I am holding on to something that withholds or steals for others? And the second then is to ask God to help you have a posture of holding what you have with open hands.